Hello everyone and welcome to episode 117 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lincook and as always I'll be your host today. On today's episode I thought I would talk about my PhD research. Now I think it's something that I have spoken about before briefly but I don't think I've ever really in depth gone into what exactly it is I am looking at and what I'm thinking about um, as I am now a year into my PhD, how time flies. Um, I think I've done an episode before about the British colonial education system which I've mentioned was pretty much a lot of the kind of original thoughts to the work that I wanted to do for my PhD but my PhD does go a little bit further than what was discussed in that episode Um, and so I thought I would kind of update you uh, and just talk a little bit about my work it really does actually help me um, when I think about my work to talk about it Um, As you can probably imagine, 117 episodes in, I am a talker um, and it helps me articulate um, what's going on in my brain uh, and all the thoughts, ideas, feelings that are flowing around. Um, So my research specifically looks at, and I'm going to give you the wordy title, it's a working title, it might change. Um, It looks at the intergenerational experiences of West Indian children in the British education system in Britain and the West Indies. Um, And one of the first things that I thought about with this project was actually the use of the term West Indian as opposed to the term Caribbean. And my working title uses the term West Indian and I do write with that term at the moment, but that is something that might change as time goes on. And it's something that I've spent a lot of time interrogating to figure out what was the right way to address uh, this generation of, of people who are now... 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s and potentially even older um, when they were children migrating uh, from the Caribbean to Britain. Now, as most people are probably aware, the term can be seen as quite problematic because of its origins um, at the time when Christopher Columbus decided to go and discover um, new parts of the world. They were looking for the Indies, which we now know as Asia. Um, And when they arrived in the Caribbean, they believed that to be Asia and called it, um, when they found out that it wasn't in fact Asia, they decided to call it the West Indies. Um, And so this name sticks somewhat from 1492 and that's what that region is called. Um, But I think that the term kind of takes on its own meaning and is shaped and fashioned by those people of African descent who are taken um, from majority of the West Coast of Africa to the Caribbean um, enslaved. And the generations that follow that as you get into the early 1900s um, and you start to see Britain, especially in the context of the Anglophone Caribbean, really shape these colonies to be like little Britons um, overseas. Uh, And the people there who may have been formerly enslaved may have been um, a mix of uh, African, European and Asian in a variety of forms, whether that be Chinese or Indian indentured labourers, or be descendants of some of the earliest settlers in the region, um, the Arawaks, the Tainos, the Caribs, um, and those kinds of people. And so I'm thinking, and I was thinking about how this term West Indian that is essentially used as it's kind of mislabeled 
that region, how it's then taken um, by the people that now inhabit that place um, and are kind of forming government and building nation as we get into the mid-1900s and there's movements for independence and the European powers that be in this area start to leave. Um, I wanted to think about how they then shaped that identity for themselves and decided to label themselves as that because in the past I've done oral history work and I've kind of spoken to people about how they identify themselves um, and I'm thinking specifically about the generation of people from the Caribbean that migrated just after World War II. Um, they would often identify as West Indian over Caribbean. I think that it is maybe people of a younger generation that tend to use the term Caribbean over West Indian. But, you know, there are isn't really a one rule fits all with it. Um, and so kind of had to lean on oral history work in the past um, and obviously academic writing on the topic and at the moment I'm, I'm with the term West Indian and West Indies but I think this will change as I keep reading and keep writing um, but essentially I wanted to think specifically about the way that migration shaped this identity because I believe that those that migrated um, in the kind of earlier part of the 20th century um especially though some of the names we mentioned on this podcast before, the likes of Harold Moody, CLR James, Amy Ashwood Garvey, Una Marson, to name but a few, and actually I haven't done episodes on them before, and I really need to actually note to self. Um, but this kind of early generation of, of intellectuals, Caribbean intellectuals I'm going to call them, um, they really shifted culture even prior to 1948 and the post-war migrations uh, that followed. Um, those people identify themselves as West Indian and those people shaped that identity and what it meant to be able to move from a colony to the metropole and how they shaped and fashioned this identity of ideals um, relating to Britishness. Um, they were Victorian ideals, uh, they were about respectability, they were about um, education, they were about Christian um, civility and that kind of thing, all tied up in very colonial ideals. Um, but still, we can't just think about it in a way that these things were pushed upon uh, black populations in the Caribbean. They were somewhat, especially when we think about middle class West Indians, um, that may have been part of the um, like free black coloured people and descendants of uh, as slavery and that time period ended. Um, we have to think about the way that they had a hand in shaping that identity and adopting it for themselves, not only the ways in which this identity was kind of pushed upon them and expected um, that they take it on. And so my work kind of toys a line of that um, in a wider context as well when I think about education, which is what the project is about, and the ways in which um, Caribbean people... See, I jump in and out, Caribbean, West Indian, I can't decide. <laughs> um, but the ways in which Caribbean people kind of deal with education for their children, um, especially in the earlier part of the 20th century. My work is a post-war project. It, it does start uh, from the 1940s onwards, but I have been looking into the deeper context of the British colonial education system to be able to place my work contextually. Now, thinking actually about the subjects at hand, shall we say, the children, the children that migrated from the Caribbean to Britain in the post-war era, um, and understanding the ways in which education was used as a tool 
in the Caribbean, um, as I believe anyway, and what I'm arguing in part, is that it was an immersion in Britishness, which is an idea that Anne Spry Rush has kind of thought through and, and used in her own work, Bonds of Empire. Um, and I believe that following on from emancipation in the Caribbean, the British colonial governments had to find a way of kind of pacifying a population and integrating them into a free society because they would no longer be enslaved. And I think that education was the way in which they did this in its most um, primary method, shall we say, because every child, the idea was anyway that they would end up going to school and having some kind of education. And education started um, earlier than you know, the formal system that we might see and understand now. Uh, there were very informal parts of educating uh, children and adults, whether that be on the plantation, through religious institutions, especially the church. Um, and there were so many denominations of the Christian church that were at work and at large in different parts of the Caribbean. Um, and it's quite interesting to see the kind of different islands and the way in which different denominations kind of were there in in biggest numbers and with the most money and influence to quote unquote civilize these formerly enslaved um populations um and so when you have something like education which is such a powerful and important tool um in so many different contexts when you have a tool like that being used to essentially um create loyal british subjects that are going to be part of this colonial agenda uh, and work towards colonial ideals, um, you kind of have got to do a good job of it in a sense, not good as in morally good, but a good job at indoctrinating them. And so this is the kind of way I frame education, or at least now, I don't know if this will change um, as time goes on. As I think as I read more, um, my mind shifts a little bit away from these ideas and thoughts. But at this stage, um, I feel like... It's definitely the case that um, education was a tool to create loyal British citizens, um, especially in the aftermath of emancipation. And this continues all the way on. And I think the legacy of colonisation in the region and in many regions of the world uh, where Europe found themselves, um, this kind of education and the fragments of the colonial legacy remain within education systems, they remain within society uh, at wider um, and you know there's obviously movements for some of these uh, Caribbean islands to become republics um, because within their parliamentary systems without their governance there are still fragments of this colonial legacy um lingering and in some cases it's more than fragments it's full full panes of glass <laughs> anyway so thinking about these children then um i look at the ways in which their experiences um kind of shape them shape their identity and what their experiences were in the first place as they moved from the caribbean to britain and i do this or i will do this primarily through oral histories um so if i'm on here in a few weeks or months asking for participants if this applies to you or you know someone then please do keep me in mind um i will be yeah interviewing people that migrated to this country as children 
and what their experiences were like navigating essentially two education systems, the one in the Caribbean that they came from and then the one here. And I think there are similarities in the way in which both education systems, despite being in different countries, actually dealt with black children, specifically Caribbean children. Um, Once, you know, children with their families started migrating to Britain in large numbers, especially in the 1960s, um, because of um, immigration acts that were being passed at rapid rates, uh, which meant that, you know, they wouldn't be eligible to um, migrate here for much longer. There was a bit of a rush, and it meant that by the 60s, you saw um, a lot of Caribbean children that had just arrived in the school system. And they are branded essentially through education policy they're labeled as a problem a social problem to be fixed and there is a big move to try and assimilate them into British culture in a similar way to me that there is this move to assimilate um, the formerly enslaved populations in the Caribbean into again British culture and British values even in the Caribbean Um, and these similarities are kind of what I hinge Um, some of my research on and it'll be some of the questions I'll be asking uh, those that take part in this oral history um, to figure out essentially if they also felt there were similarities uh, in the way that they were treated potentially I don't think they will be I'm trying not to let my previous thoughts kind of bias um, the interview process although I'm sure it will because that's just the nature of human beings doing research Um, but essentially I'll be thinking about, you know, what was this experience like, especially as a little child, you know? Think about it. If any of you have, have migrated as children, you'll know that you didn't you didn't get a say in it, I'm sure. I don't think anybody asked you, did you want to move to England or wherever else you moved to? Or, you know, uh, are, you, are you happy to go? Maybe they did ask you your feelings about it, but you wouldn't have had a choice necessarily. And because this migration is a forced migration in a way, um, there's no agency for a young child, especially if they're um, like of primary school age. They wouldn't really understand necessarily why they need to move, why it's been sold to them as this positive thing. Often the narrative was that, you know, we're going for a better life, for a better education, for better opportunities. You kind of just have to suck it up and get on board. Um, and so I think this frustration teamed with then a potentially very racist and violent education system for the newly arrived children, also teamed with this idea of a past education system uh, in the Caribbean, essentially still trying to hold on to these colonial shards, um, but also it being a majority black country and race and racism functioning in a very different way than it would in a place like England that's a majority white country and these newly arrived black children are being painted as a social problem and outsiders and different so it's kind of like playing with all those tensions and trying to figure out what that experiences were like knowing all those different things Um, and I'm sure that the education system in Britain and the migration experiences of children they're going to be different across the board I don't want to just think about those that migrated to London or Birmingham. Um, I want to get a wider picture of, of what it looked like um, for the wider, probably England. Although using the term British, you've got to think about essentially Britain and not just England. Um, I come more and more to understand. But again, just trying to paint the widest picture as possible of the experiences uh, of these children 
that were migrating. And then kind of following on from those migration stories, then the points of of active resistance, um, the points of activism, of parents' movements, of those intellectuals, some of whom I mentioned earlier, that then have to work together to try and make the education system work for black children, even though the system was not meant for black children to succeed. You've got the likes of Bernard Cord, you've got John LaRose, you've got Jessica and Eric Huntley um, in the publication area and they work to inform parents of what's happening. You've got activists like Gerlin Bean, you've got Olive Morris, you've got OAD um, as a wider organisation. You've got a lot of people working towards um, better outcomes in education uh, for black children and for Asian children as well. My work only looks at Caribbean children specifically just because there's only so much you can do in like three or four years, you know? Um, and I think there is quite a unique experience uh, for black children that differs um, with that of Asian children. And sometimes it's important to have a kind of conversation about about both communities both groups at once sometimes actually it's not very fruitful and I think this was a case where it wouldn't be very fruitful to lump all immigrants together and then from there I'm sure you can imagine my work gets into supplementary schools and some of those kind of points of resistance um, and what tangibly those look like whether it were actual protests campaigns whether it were things like supplementary schools, Saturday schools, and organisations that kind of did this work, like the Black Parents Movement, Teachers Against Racism, Caribbean Education and Community Workers Association, the West Indian Standing Conference, the North London West Indian Association, to name but a few um, of these organisations that were doing that work. Um, and there's a part of me that also wants to look at the impact of black teachers um, and how that kind of works into this narrative. I feel like it won't be anything huge. Um, it's something I've looked at in the past, um, specifically looking at Caribbean women that worked as teachers. But I think that it would be... you. I would have to... I need to think about black teachers in this work. Um, how much time I can give to those thoughts... All depend. Um, but I think they will be integral to the narratives, essentially. Um, being part of, kind of, whilst just doing their jobs. Also, um, in so many cases, there are stories where they are literally the only ones advocating for black children in a school setting. Um, and because they were so few and far between in certain cities, um, it will be important to, to think about um, what they did and, and how they worked and especially when you think about the times that I'm looking at in the post-war era 1960s as I said is where you see a big increase in the number of black children in schools um, but it's also the time where you start to see um, black the first blackhead teachers in Britain Yvonne Connolly, Betty Campbell, Tony O'Connor, Beryl Gilroy um, and you know a few others to name and that's kind of a whistle stop tour of my PhD, essentially, um, it will primarily focus and centre the narratives, as I said, of those that migrated as children. I feel like when we think about um, this really broad and generalising term of Windrush, you know, and symbolism of it, of the arrivals in the post-war era, especially from the Caribbean, we think about working adults, we think about ex-servicemen, uh, women often are not included in the narrative, and children, I think, barely get a look in 
Um, and that's probably because of the way we frame these stories being about contribution, being about contribution to British society. Well, children, they don't really contribute as children, let's be honest. You know, they use public resources, whether it be healthcare or education. Um, and it's not till they're older that they begin to contribute in the way that um, their parents are celebrated for, shall we say, on the 22nd of June every year. Um, and so it's quite interesting then that I think I will spend all this time thinking about children. It's not something I've done before, but but as I get more into my work, I realise that histories of childhood and thinking about children's experiences historically is an ever-growing field and a very interesting one. Histories of education, my work falls into a little bit as I look at education policy and how that shaped the experiences of these children in question. Um, and all these things are kind of little academic avenues that I'd never thought about before that are quite interesting um, and obviously pertinent and relevant to my work um, and so yeah that is where what, where I am what I'll be doing um, for the next few years I say with bated breath because who knows how long it might take um, but it is a very exciting project to me and it's a project that I have so far enjoyed working on and I can't wait to see kind of the things that I find out, the conversations that I might have and um, the work that I will hopefully um, produce on this topic and kind of fill in this gap, which is the kind of get the name of the academic game, kind of got to fill in a gap within research um, and think of something that hasn't necessarily been looked at in depth or from a different angle or, you know, just insert a kind of, of narrative into um, the discipline or the discourse that is currently available and children is is that for me and I'll be, yeah, thinking about their experiences and thinking about them as well um, in hindsight because I don't think I won't be actually interviewing, of course, any children. It will be all adults and elderly people that um, did this move uh, however many years ago I was going to do the maths really quickly 80 potentially as as many as 80 years ago um, I probably won't be interviewing anybody that migrated as a child 80 years ago um, but those that migrated maybe later in the like 60s and 70s um, who would be around 60 or 70 today and I'm very much looking forward to this work and the conversations that might follow so that is all kind of my PhD essentially uh, in about 22 minutes and 37 seconds um, but I hope you have enjoyed uh, listening to me talk about my work if you have any questions or any wider questions about doing a PhD generally I don't know if you're listening and you're in your younger years of study um, whether that be history or another subject please do feel free to reach out if you have any questions about doing a PhD what it's like if it's hard it is but it's worth it, I think, I hope. <laughs> um, yeah, please feel free to reach out. And I hope you have a wonderful week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Goodbye.